Brick Moon Fiction presents Voices by Sam French, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. It was really as simple as this. The planet next door had a better moon than ours. Superficially speaking, it just looked nicer. It looked more like a moon, or the moon, the one from the early myths. You looked up at the moon from the planet next door and thought to yourself, I feel like I could really be an original human and could really be on Earth, and could really be walking on a beach or underneath a canopy of trees or at one of those mini-mall things, whatever they were, and it filled you with a deep happiness. It wasn't just that it was nicer looking, though. It was a better size and shape, which affected all sorts of things, and was just one of the reasons the planet next door was better than ours, and the lives of those who lived on it were better, too. So, one day I was at one of the council meetings, and I just said joking at first, but serious by the end of the sentence. What if we stole their moon? This isn't ultimately a story about stealing a moon, but this is where we should start. It really is just a story about reclaiming a basic quality of life lost for hundreds of generations. About feeling more whole or something. Everyone in the council meeting looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, why not? They wouldn't be expecting it. They wouldn't be expecting it, a few argued, because it couldn't be done. The sheer science of it, and this is before we even get into more sort of minute logistics, was flawed. And I said so was the original proposal to colonize these 13 planets, but here we were 13,000 years in the future, and that in science, impossibilities were meant to be disproved. Surely there were robots who would be big enough. Jenkins, that impossibly nerdy scientist, just said, Surely they'd notice their moon was missing. And that was that. I thought about it for four or five weeks and developed a sort of plan, and I walked into Jenkins' office and told him they wouldn't notice it if we did it when they weren't looking, and then replaced it with something else. If someone was on their planet at the observation center, perhaps they could cause a diversion, and we could switch the moon with something else before anyone noticed. He agreed to do some calculations, and I took a private charter shuttle into the deep space asteroid mines to try to find a big enough, sentient enough, and creative enough robot. By the way, Jenkins suggested I distract the observers on the planet next door by wearing a low-cut shirt, so I kicked him in the balls. No joke. People always say I have no decorum, but I have good ideas and am good at communicating them, so they keep me around. Like, even if it's not my idea, I'm usually the one who can get others to believe in it, no matter how abstract it is or theoretical. I know the right words and the right way to say them. Robots are typically unimaginative. My first few days at the asteroid mines were spent coding into their comm systems to try to explain what I wanted them to do. Their vocabulary is limited as well, so it was sort of just along the lines of, I want you to drag a giant rock through space from one planet to another and being constantly hacked out of their drives so that they could continue along crushing asteroids for some corporation that built them 2,000 years ago. But after I shifted from the fields, where the robots are larger and stronger, to the middle management offices, these offices you wouldn't believe, the size of a hundred suns, these herds of massive robots in the middle of deep space, some cathedrals of servers, sort of, I started having more luck. Eventually, I stumbled upon D6X-ish, the ish thrown on by some sardonic programmer who, at origin, gave ish, as I now lovingly call him, a non-typical amount of wishy-washiness for a robot of his model. Ish was big. I'm talking the size of a gas giant big. 
and strong and, yes, non-committal, but I think this wishy-washiness actually taught Ish about the concept of alternative options, and he evolved. Yes, as they get system updates, they literally evolve to be one of the most open-minded robots I've ever encountered. So, when I told him about the heist I was planning, he immediately grasped what I was trying to accomplish. He understood that he should say no, but that he could say yes. And then it was just a matter of appealing to his ego, and getting him to tow a moon-sized asteroid back with us. So, we had a team. Jenkins would program the necessary and, granted, complicated math into Ish's system to help him steal one moon, replace it with a very large asteroid, drag the moon across a solar system, put it into our orbit, remove our moon and destroy it, all without setting off the biggest space eco-catastrophe since the E-Black Hole of 14,011. Ish was, to use a phrase I picked up from some of the older texts, the muscle. And I was something else. Jenkins said I had a way with humans, which, while it doesn't sound like much, was pretty significant in our world. You would think that with the volume of techno-labor required to survive and flourish in these systems, face-to-face -face comm skills would be a pretty useless resource slash skill. But as it became more useless, it became more rare. Until the supply-demand curve entirely flipped and you might suddenly have only three good people on an entire planet at talking, or making people laugh, or making them believe in themselves. Basically, I could elicit emotion, and Jenkins, nerd that he was, was smart enough to realize that emotion is a great and powerful tool. Or weapon. Jenkins figured out that there was one day, three and a half their years, 2.167 our years, away, when their moon would be eclipsed by the sun for about 14 minutes. So that was obviously when we were going to strike. 14 minutes didn't give us a large margin of error, and it would take Ish 26 minutes alone to get into the right position. So I had three and a half years to get hired by their observation center, all for a half-hour pre-eclipse where I would have to distract them long enough to not notice a massive and misplaced asteroid mining robot entering their solar system and positioning itself by their moon. We had the element of surprise, but that was a lot to ask. I moved to the planet next door and quickly applied for a job in tech mediation. When people asked me why I immigrated, I said it was because the conditions of their planet were more favorable. True. And that I had fallen in love with the view of their moon. Also true. I became pretty invaluable early on when I helped the CEO of the tech company negotiate a retirement package with a board member who had never been in the same room with another human before that moment and was, predictably, jumpy. I asked the CEO, before he packed up, to recommend me for government service, even though I wasn't naturally born. Nine months after I had moved, I was working for the observation center. I routinely got coded messages from Jenkins. He was having a bit of trouble with a black hole that was starting to form three galaxies over, just because it was a bit irregular and causing some difficulties guessing what exact path Ish should take back to us with the moon. But he was confident that Ish had the improvisational skills, said without any irony, to overcome any abnormalities it may cause. He also told me that Ish was practicing basic logic puzzles designed for gifted elementary school students, and even learning auditory English so his comm could be streamlined for us. Everyone was committed, apparently. The council was behind us, too, throwing funding at us constantly and apologizing to me for their initial skepticism. It was top secret, of course, but if we pulled this off, we would be a kind of top-secret band of heroes. A quick note on quality of life. In deep space, in the colonies, quality of life is entirely dependent on being able to almost, for a moment, for a quick second once a day, forget that we are members of a species-wide diaspora.
Thousands of years later, our bones still yearn for that mythological planet, and we crave any trick or illusion to trigger some bloodline sense memory that reminds us of our ancestral home. There are genuine medical and psychological studies that explain this phenomenon. A person may live up to 30 years longer if they smell salt water, for instance, or if they can afford to take a pilgrimage to see one of the three dogs remaining in the universe, that sort of thing. So this is why the stealing of this moon would have big implications. We were just looking for proof that we were human. At least that's why Jenkins and I cared. We missed something we had never known. We had a phantom limb that didn't ever exist. I'm not totally sure why Ish wanted to do something. Maybe it was that it was the very last thing a robot would ever be programmed to do. Maybe that was some sort of breaking of chains. Maybe in his mind it was skipping over an evolutionary step from barely sentient to God straight away. Shaper of universe rather than very large wrench. This is speculation. So Jenkins was dealing with black holes and Ish was preparing itself mentally and physically. My main obstacle was the chief observer, a man who might as well have been a robot, who clearly had stillness and focus written into his DNA so securely that it might as well have been code itself. I got to know him through other people and what I heard was discouraging. Someone told me about the time they spilled scalding coffee on him, only to see that his rate of breathing didn't even shift, even as the room could smell his prosthetic pants melting. A common joke was that his mother could kill his wife and he wouldn't blink, so focused was he on his ever-important task of observing, of monitoring, of detecting, of knowing the intricacies of the universe as they related to his home. His job was to oversee the observation center, to make sure nothing was wrong amongst the moon, the stars, the heavens. I wouldn't be able to break his focus. So I decided I would have to shift it. Ish was ready. Jenkins was feeling good. We were all waiting. I still had to figure this out, but I was on to something. When the eclipse happens, maybe we... I had his attention with a novel idea, a reconceptualization of our job, a reframing of the eclipse not as a lost opportunity to see 14 minutes of space, but as a new opportunity to turn the powerful observation equipment in on itself and to study the core of the planet. A vague and theoretical idea, but as I've said before, I'm good at making them stick. He quickly turned it into his own idea and, better yet, suggested we expand the window from 14 minutes to 45, tripling our efficiency. But couldn't we miss something happening before the eclipse in space? I suggested. But his focus had already shifted. The thing about our species now is that we have lost some sort of logic. I don't know if it's because original human logic was built in accordance to a natural logic of a world that no longer exists, but we have our own way of thinking now that maybe relates more to Ish than it does to the original humans. And so, if it seemed easy to convince the chief observer to abandon his post for something else, you have to understand that his brain went through any number of wormholes that haven't yet been mapped to make sense of it. On the day we were going to steal the moon, I woke up early to help out with the transition team at the observation center. There would be a moment when a whistle was blown. Everyone in the room would hear the whistle and spring to action, turning off some thousands of instruments and equipments and rebooting them and literally reprogramming or even turning them around. At the same time, I'd blow my own metaphorical whistle, heard only by Jenkins and Ish. Ish would begin moving out of the edge of our orbit into the edge of the orbit of the planet next door. Jenkins constantly in its ear, chattering about adjustments to arcs, propulsion equations, etc., etc., and I would be making sure the planet next door was looking the other way. And as they looked the other way, Ish would take its mechanical arms, roughly 3,321 of them, 
and web them together to create some sort of net, looping around their moon, replacing it with a similar enough asteroid. It would then turn on the full force of its thrusters, plus some added equipment with fuel designed by Jenkins specifically for the moment, and away it would float, back into our orbit, carrying our new moon. And that's exactly how it happened. Almost. As the equipment was refocused, and as Ish was switching out the moon with the asteroid, a distress signal sounded from, of all places, an elementary school on the far side of the planet who had been observing the eclipse as a school project. Apparently, some snot-nosed genius budding inventor, a fifth grader, had designed and built and installed a series of periscopic instruments capable of observing the far side of the moon. He wasn't satisfied with the typical educational eclipse-observing instruments. And when he saw what looked like a giant space monster absorbing the moon, he told his teachers, who understood emergency protocol even if they didn't understand what they were seeing. And so alarms started going off in the observation center, and the chief observer instantly understood that an invasion of sorts was happening and was preparing to send out emergency missiles. Jenkins had told me that if Ish was noticed, it would take 13.6 seconds for missiles to reach him. I could tell by looking at the clock that in 17.2 seconds Ish would be out of range and we would be in the clear, which meant I had to come up with a new distraction, one that would delay the chief observer at least 3.6 seconds. Fast thinking is another generally unneeded skill. Equations plan out so much in our lives that improvisation is generally unnecessary. But it was another skill I somehow possessed. As the chief observer rushed to order off the missiles, my mind opened like an encyclopedia and settled on an archaic word that had been deemed almost meaningless by anthropologists but for some reason had always stuck with me. Sing. I didn't really know what exactly it meant or why it came to mind, but I knew I was supposed to open up my mouth and let some sort of noise out. I guess something primal kicked in because the noise that came out of me didn't feel like my own. It felt like my grandmother's or like her great-great-great-grandmother's, or it felt like the whisper of an imploded star. It sounded like the whistling of light speed. It tilled up and down like the axis of an out-of-control planet. It rang out like tiny detritus pinging off a metal space station. There were no words, but everyone turned to face me, stunned, allowing time to simply pass. Ish made it home with the moon and put it in our orbit, but it didn't matter. I told you before that we had just been trying to reclaim some quality of life, mysteriously related to the feeling our ancestors must have had when they stared up at the sky. And it didn't take the moon to find that feeling, to match the heavens that they must have felt once before. It took a voice, and everyone has one of those. You don't need to steal them. So, this was just a story about remembering that. Sam French is a writer and director located in Brooklyn. Originally from Florida, he is a recent graduate of Carnegie Mellon University. His plays have been produced in Pittsburgh, Florida, Martha's Vineyard, and New York. His short story, A Love Letter to the Boys of Summer, won the Adamson Award for Fiction at CMU. Sam was named a Top 20 Artist Under 25 in the Tampa area by Creative Loafing Magazine and has two one-acts published by Baker's Plays. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.